There are times, there are seasons, there are situations where the words of the curse ring especially true. The words from Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, hear this. And God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Church, we live in a world where work is far harder than we wish it were to be. Mankind sinned, and as a result, the labor of our hands is difficult, hard, and challenging. Sometimes we work a lot for very little. Other times, we work a lot for no fruit. We know that this does not just apply to ag and ranching type work, but it is all work. It is all work that has been frustrated by the fall, by our willingness to walk into and agree with the devil in sin. Because of that, we are a people who seem to always need rest. We are a people who always seem to need rest. And if you're anything like me, too much of the time that rest seems farther off than you want it to be. Church, our passage today is coming out of and off of the heels of the discussion we saw last week in Mark chapter 2 about fasting. This passage and the next one that follows deals with the Sabbath and much-needed rest. This brings us an important question for the believer about how we should approach the Sabbath rest, which we aim and are aiming to answer uh, today. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. I'd like to read that for us as we really begin our time into this passage. It says, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, church, we live in what could be described as the busiest time in all of history. If anybody needed, if anybody needs a Sabbath, it is our generations. And yet, we are the least likely generation in the history of the world to participate in a regular devotion of any kind that could in any way be construed as a Sabbath 
rest. Hear that. We are the people in the history of the world who need it the most, and yet we are the people who are the least likely to engage in an intentional time of rest. We are exhausted people. Parents, can I get an amen? Tired, burdened, and in some cases burned out or burned up in our pursuits in this world. To feed our family, to pay the bills, to impress those around us, to serve those that we love and care for. I'll tell you, when I moved to rural places about eight or nine years ago, when we went from the suburbs of Denver to Lahana, I expected that it would be easier to find rest. I have found it to be the opposite. Despite the fact that in the suburbs everybody is anxious about all things and they are incredibly busy, we rural people actually may trump them in terms of our busyness, our schedules, and our ability to put work in front of us. A whole bunch of us, at least in one way or another, work out of our homes or on the property that we live, which means there's always something more to do. Not only that, but we know our neighbors. You know, in the suburbs, they don't really know their neighbors, which means even as they're trying to impress their neighbors with their new cars and their fancy house or whatever else, they don't actually know the neighbor they're trying to impress, but we know our neighbors. We know what we're competing with. We go into it seeking, right, seeking to impress in some way. Church, we are a driven people. We are an anxious people. We have tendencies to overwork, to let pursuit of material gain be our primary focus, to be defined by our work and by what we do. We have just as much tendencies as that as anybody else does. We have this tendency to find a little more work and a little more money so that we can push ourselves just a little bit further. But what is it for? We are tired. We are tired people. And if you're tired here today, I want you to just take a deep breath. Because we are tired people. In church, we are a tired people together. And I want to tell you, the Bible has good news for tired people. The Bible has good news for tired people. It starts in verse 23, where we see the unbearable burdens that we have. Let me say that again. We see the unbearable burdens that we have. If you're feeling unbearably burdened, like there's a heavy weight on you today, you are in the right place, church. Praise the Lord. Amen. All right, verse 23 says this. One Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, there is the disciples, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Church, what I want to point out here is that the Pharisees are laying down a burden here on Jesus and his disciples. But I want to tell you that burden was not misplaced. We have the tendency, we look at the Pharisees, we think everything they do and everything they were about was wrong. That wasn't the case. They were taking seriously that which Scripture takes seriously. Church, most of us would in some way describe ourselves as evangelicals. Evangelicals take the Bible seriously. 
You may not know what that word means. That's fine. Some of us describe our, ourselves as Baptists. Well, i got to tell you, Baptists take the word seriously. Some of us would describe ourselves as something else. And if you're here today, it's probably because in some way you take Scripture seriously because we are a church that takes Scripture seriously. Here's what Scripture says about the Sabbath. Exodus 35, chapter two, or verse 2 through 3. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Now, church, there's a heavy burden here. Those who would do work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Now, that tells me we should kind of take something about this seriously, right? There's a capital punishment for those who don't observe the Sabbath. And verse 3 actually gives us kind of a qualifier, kind of a descriptor of, of how we should take that. And it says, you shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. You say, well, I mean, that's fine. I don't make fires on the Sabbath day. I don't have a wood stove right now. I don't make any fires. Church, we're talking about a community and a, a people in a time frame where if they ate, it was from kindling wood on a fire. They cooked on fire. They kept their houses warm on, on the fire. And God said to them, I want you to take so seriously this instruction of Sabbath rest that if you don't, you could or maybe should be put to death. Now, that's a heavy burden. Uh, I want to expand that a little bit for us. Exodus 34, verse 21 tells us, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Hear this, people who live in a farming town, in plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. You mean that even when the harvest is sitting in the field, ready to be reaped, I need to leave it there for 24 hours while I focus my mind and my heart on something else? Now, I'm going to be straight up. This gets real convicting for some of us. Church, the Pharisees took the Sabbath seriously because Scripture takes the Sabbath seriously, okay? Now, to be fair to most of our assumptions about the Pharisees, now they took it a whole new level. They, uh, they had this teaching called the Mishnah. What the Mishnah was, was a generations-long commentary written by numerous rabbis over the years about what these things meant. And over the years, the Mishnah became law, even though it wasn't supposed to be law. And so the Mishnah specifically talked about a couple things that apply to our passage here. I'm going to tell you three of them. The first one is reaping. Reaping was against the rules of the Sabbath. And so as they watched the, the disciples walk through the field and pluck grains off, they said that's reaping. Now, in the book of Luke, which Mark doesn't tell us this, but in Luke they also pick 
um, not only on the reaping, but on the threshing. And the threshing was the process of cleaning the grain heads to be then ground into flour. And so what the disciples were doing in that moment in the book of Luke is as they plucked them, they would rub them between their fingers to get the chaff and the husk off. And then they were kind of popping the little bits of grain into their mouth. Now, that doesn't sound very appetizing to me, but that's what they were doing. Not only that, but the Mishnah told the people of Israel, the, the people of God, that anything more than 1,990 steps suddenly went from no work to work. So you could walk roughly half a mile before it became work. Now, I'm just going to say, they're out in the middle of a field. Chances are they've walked more than half a mile. Yesterday I went for a walk. I walked three quarters of a mile around one field. It brought me halfway around one field that I was walking around. It was 12 minutes of walking. Now what that tells me is that at 12 minutes I was probably already over time. So maybe it's 10 minutes of walking. So 10 minutes you can walk, but 11, no. And I'm, I'm thankful that some of us are laughing in here. Because this is absurd, right? This is absolutely absurd. In fact, that's what R.C. Sproul says about it. He says, this is where legalism leads to absurdity. And I'll just tell you, I believe that legalism always leads to absurdity. It didn't start at absurdity, but it leads to it eventually. But I want to hear us to hear this. I want us to know how important Sabbath rest is at this juncture. And the absurdity of it all proves how important it was. And church, let me just say this. If it was that important, it still is. If it was that important, it still is. The Pharisees came by these regulations honestly. Now, I'm of the mind, and I hope you are this way too. I always want to be generous with people in the hopes that they'll then be generous with me. Church, let me just say, as your pastor, I'm going to be as generous with you as I possibly can be. My hope is that you will be as generous with me as you possibly can be. That's how you have a church that, that, that does well together and grows together. I'm going to have the same attitude toward the, towards the Pharisees right now because I believe, as we look at the Pharisees, that they didn't want to burden the people. I mean, who wakes up in the morning and says, you know what I want to do today? I want to make somebody's life harder. Now, those people exist. They're sociopaths and all other manner of crazy. But nobody wakes up, and I'll just tell you, no shepherd wakes up and says, you know what I want to do today? I want to make my people's life harder. But what are they doing? Well, there's a death penalty at the end of the spectrum. And so what they've done is create a hedge that keeps people from the boundary where the actual danger is. Parents, we make hedges for our children all the time, right? We make boundaries all the time for our kids to keep them safe. The thing is, is a hedge is really good when they're three. But if they have the same hedges when they're 18, as they have when there were three, say, a six o'clock bedtime, it starts to get pretty uncomfortable. In fact, it starts to become a burden, right? You say to your four or five-year-old, hey, don't touch the stove. 
And then you tell your 16-year-old to make dinner, but they can't touch the stove, right? It's impossible to follow. And what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 4 about all of this, he says this, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What Jesus is saying is they've created these hedges around these barriers, around these dangers. And even as they should and could be free to, to no longer be stuck in that hedge, they're still stuck in it. And the Pharisees won't move that away. Why? Because they burdened them. The burden wasn't the goal, but it's what happened. Church, what I want to suggest to us today is that we are a people who have had numerous and heavy burdens placed upon us. And we are a people who are often suffering through those burdens. And some of those burdens, other people placed on us. And some of those burdens are burdens we place on ourselves. What we encounter at the beginning of the passage here is a burden that has been placed upon the people of God. And it is a burden that's crushing them. I don't know what your burden is today, but I know you've got a burden. I know that there's a burden in your life, and maybe it's the pressures of this world, it's the financial whatever else, right? Maybe, uh, maybe it's big financial goals that you've set, and you are working every day for that big financial goal, and then the world shifted, and you're still working on that. Or maybe you made a financial commitment in some direction, and because of that financial commitment, you are now stuck and paying over and over and over again for it. Or maybe it's, it's the need to prove ourselves. Guys, i got to tell you, there, there are times, and I know it in my heart, and I, I finally really started admitting it to the Lord. I'm a people pleaser. I crave the attention of others. I want to be, others to be pleased with me. It hurts me when that doesn't happen. Now, I'm just going to tell you, that becomes a challenge as a pastor because there's going to be times you are not pleased with me. And some of those are going to be necessary times. And there's a burden. And it's not a burden you've placed on me. It's not a burden God has placed on me. It's a burden I've placed on myself. Church, some of us are so busy that we have a constant stream of thoughts and demands and pressures. And as a result, we can't sleep. We can't eat without thinking about stuff. We can't drive down the road without the anxiety of what it is that's going on around us. We, we get overwhelmed by the things undone, and we're so overwhelmed by the things that we have undone that, that we don't even know where to begin when we actually sit down and have the time to do something. And I want to tell you, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This is the world. This is the world that we live in, but it is not the world that God gave to us. And it's not the world that we have to be in now. And here's why. Because burdens, the burdens that we have were never meant to be burdens. And the burdens that we see in our passage here were not meant to be burdens, but they were meant to be blessings. And this leads us to verse 25 through 27. Here's what it says. He, this is Jesus, says to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. 
And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, real quick, what Jesus is referring to here is in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. Now, I want to make a quick note that has nothing to do with this message, but it's a quick note about our passage and what Jesus says here. There are those in the world who are seeking to tear down the word of God in Scripture and try to prove it wrong. This is one of the places they'll go to. I'm sharing with, with you so that if anybody ever asks you and tries to prove the Bible wrong by this uh, and brings this up, you will have a good and solid answer for it. And here's the problem as seen in our passage. Jesus talks about this guy named Abiathar who is the high priest. The trouble is when David did that thing, when he went into the temple and he ate the bread and he gave it to all his men, Abiathar was not the high priest. They say, well, Jesus was wrong. And if Jesus was wrong, then he's not God. And if Jesus isn't God, then Christianity is debunked, and you all might as well go home. The thing is, is Abiathar was not high priest. He, he wasn't high priest then, but he was high priest in that generation. He was a priest when David did that thing. And he's also the most well-known priest of that time period. Jesus isn't trying to say that David did that when he was high priest, but in that time frame, in that era of time where Abiathar was the high priest because the other guy is barely known. And it's a whole lot clearer for Jesus to say what he said. That's a side note. You can come back around to it. But here's the thing. These sorts of things to me are not a convincing idea that it's unreliable, but actually that it is reliable. Because you know it would have been really easy for the church to do at some point in the last 2,000 years? Take that guy's name out of there. And then the whole problem goes away, right? But Scripture is reliable, and it does not get changed the whims of mankind just to make it simpler. And that tells me that, that the Word of God is true and, and lasting. That's an aside to what we're talking about here. Back to Sabbath and rest and all that. What we see in our passage here is that David led his men to eat what has been set aside as sacred and holy for special purposes. That bread was given as part of people's sacrifice unto the Lord. And the portion of that was then given to the priests only to eat. David going into the temple, him taking that bread, him giving that to his men many of which were not holy men, was a clear break with the laws of God concerning that bread and the temple. And to do so was a death sentence. To do so was a death sentence. But here's the thing. David did that thing, and nowhere in Scripture, and nowhere by God, and nowhere by a prophet, and nowhere was he condemned or found guilty of what he did. See, David was the man, and we call him this all the time. It doesn't mean he was perfect. He was the man after God's own heart. Because of that, he understood the heart of the law that God had given to them. He and his men were starving. They were passing by. And to pass by food sitting right there that would keep them alive and, and help them to fight yet another day for justice would have been an unnecessary burden on them. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The similarities between the sacred bread, which is set aside for holy purposes, and the Sabbath, which is also set aside for holy purposes, are clear, right? These things are one to the other, but one is far greater than the other. The eating of the bread in the temple was far greater. 
God himself in the Old Testament put other people to death for smaller infractions. And what Jesus is saying in comparing these two things is that David stealing from the sacred and holy offering versus the disciples plucking heads of grain and eating them is a joke. It's absurd. Right? If David can do the one, then the disciples can walk through a field and absentmindedly pluck little heads of grain and eat them. See, Jesus refers to, the, to David, the hero of their the hero king of their history and their faith, then he leads them into the clear teaching on the matter. And this is what he's saying here. He's saying the law was meant to bless, not to burden. Immediately after he tells this story, refers back to David, he says these words. The Sabbath was made, this is in verse 27, by the way. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Again, the Sabbath was never meant to burden, but rather to bless. In alignment with all Old Testament law, which also was meant as a blessing, not a burden. And it was a blessing because the law was a boundary. The law was a boundary. And boundaries are blessings. Every child who has good boundaries is far freer than the child who anxiously never knows how far they can go or where they can go or not go or what they can do and not do. Every child who has good boundaries is freer than the ones who don't have good boundaries. I learned this actually in early on in our marriage and not about children. Early on in our marriage before we set up a budget, I was always paralyzed in spending money. My question, no matter how much I was going to spend, was it a dollar on a candy bar or a thousand dollars on a new toy? Do we have the money for this or that? Will this hurt our finances? Even small things, because we all know small things add up. Every single purchase I made at the beginning of our marriage, as we were combining income and trying to figure out how to do all that difficult work in early marriage, was met with anxiety and fear. Every purchase. And then we set aside and we made a budget. And suddenly, it was incredible. I was free. I could buy a candy bar or something else because suddenly I knew what the boundaries were. Right? I knew what we could do and, and I knew what we couldn't do. Same idea. The law of God was a blessing because it created boundaries. The trouble comes when traditions then reframe those boundaries. Now, in football... The boundary is part of the game. It's part of the strategy, right? Especially that fourth quarter. You want to run that clock. You, you, know, you don't go out. If you don't want to run it, you get your, yourself out of the game, right? You get yourself out of the boundaries. Now, imagine this. Other games like volleyball, and if you go outside that boundary, you lose a point. Or you, the other team gains a point. So I want you to picture this. Say a team keeps hitting the ball out of bounds. And so the coach does, and they say, all right, team, we keep getting this wrong. So what I want you to do is I want you to only aim three feet inside of that boundary. And so the team says, all right, we're going to aim for three feet. But they're not very good, and so they, they hit two feet out in, inside of that boundary, right? And so the coach says, all right, I wanted three. You're only doing two. Let's do five. 
And so the team goes out, and they're hitting, and they're not very good. And so they only hit it at four. And so she says, no, I really wanted five, so let's go eight. And the team is now hitting just only to the center, like five feet of the very center of the whole court. The entire team on the other side just goes and stands in that little spot and just kind of keeps setting it over because they know exactly where the ball's going every time. Now notice this. The boundary never moved, but the hedge did. And so the boundary, which is a blessing, it tells you what to do and how to do it, was hindered by the hedge that became this really heavy burden. Church, here's what it says in Galatians 3, 24 through 25 about the law of God. It says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The necessary burden of the law was meant to drive people to Jesus, and it was meant to guard people until the time of Jesus. Church, I want you to hear this really well. The blessing of the Sabbath was a rich, rich blessing, and we know this. We are people who know that the blessing of God in the Sabbath was a rich blessing. We know it intuitively. Here's a few of the blessings that we know. Right, the Sabbath gave the people of God a required day off. Let me just ask this really simply. How many of you could use an absolutely required day off every single week, week after week, month after month, year after year? Every one of us, right? We know the blessing of a day off. We don't always take it. Sometimes we can't take it, but we know how valuable that would be. This is one of the ways that God's people were set aside in all of the nations around them. They got a day of rest. You know what that meant? That meant they were healthier than all the other people. Emotionally and physically and spiritually healthier than everybody else around them. This was a blessing for the people. Here's another blessing that comes. In the Sabbath day of rest, in the traditional Jewish sense, the Sabbath day of rest, it refocused people on what really matters. See, one of the side effects of going in day out, day out, day out, every day, working, 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 is we lose sight of what really matters. Now, you will meet men who will look back on their life after they've retired and they're on their deathbed and they look back. You know what they don't say? I wish I worked more. They say, I wish I spent more time with my family. A weekly Sabbath reminds us of, of what we're working for. It reminds us what life is about. It is a day where you get to turn off all the other stuff and just be who you were made to be. To refocus on what matters. Here's another blessing that, that came in this time for these these people, it was a day, one day a week, where your life was not defined by what you did or what you were capable of. When somebody comes to you and they say, who are you? How do you answer? I say I'm a pastor. Or I say I'm a dad or a husband. And I might throw a hobby in there depending on who I'm talking about. Look, we are a people, and, and this is true for them too at the time, who defined ourselves by what we do and by what we are capable of. 
The Sabbath gave one day where none of that mattered. What does it matter, the job that you do, when you're not doing it? And so that was one day a week to be a son of God or a child of God, a daughter of God. But it was one day a week where we reset. Here's another blessing. And I just want to tell you, at this point, there, there are literally thousands of blessings we could probably come up with for the reason why Sabbath was so important to the Jewish people and why God instituted it for his people. But here's the, four, the last one I'm going to share right now. And it is, it is that rem, it reminds us that we are not God. It reminds us that we are not God. Now, before you laugh at that, and you're like, I know I'm not God. Let me ask you a question. In creation, when God instituted the first, in the first idea of Sabbath, he created for six days, and then he rested for one. Did God need to rest? No. Right? I could ask it another way. Did God get tired? Right? No. God didn't get tired. Let me ask you another question. Do you get tired? All right. That means you're not God. And that matters because we live in a time, and I think this is the, true through all history, really, probably, where the number one reason why people, even when they're convinced of the truth of the gospel, even when they're convinced of the truth that God is here and real and loves them, the number one reason they don't become Christians, that they don't follow after God, is because they want to be the master of their own universe. They want to be the master of their own existence. And the moment that you acknowledge that God is there, he becomes the master of our existence. Right? It would be laughable, laughable to say, I believe that there's a God who loves me and who has called me and who wants to be in a relationship with me, but I'm going to keep doing what I want to do regardless of anything he wants me to do. Church, the simple fact that we need to sleep, that we need to rest, that we get tired, that our energy runs out, our ability runs out, our ability to cope runs out means that we're not God. And if we're not God, then we need to turn to the one who is. Friends, I want to tell you, I've, I've tried to be the master of my own existence. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And this leads us to the final, and this is a bit bigger of a category, the final blessing that it is of the Sabbath. And this was not one that the Jewish people understood but this is one that we can understand from our passage. Here's the final words of our passage. Church, I want you to hear this. This is the biggest blessing of the entire passage. Verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What does it mean that he's the Lord of the Sabbath? Well, uh, first note, I'll just really quickly say this. It means he created it and instituted it, right? It was his idea. And he's in charge of it. Now, that means, and I'm not going to go into big detail here. I'm actually going to send out an email later this week or post it to Facebook, probably both, um, a whole explanation of that. But we just don't have time to get into this. What that means is that he has the power to redefine it, to redefine what it looks like. And here's what that means ultimately for us. Here's the important bit of this. It means that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Now, I want to say it one more time. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is the most important thing I'm going to say today. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. 
Matthew 11, 29 through 30. These hopefully are familiar words to you. If they're not, I just want to tell you, if you only memorize a couple verses of Scripture in the entire Bible, these should be them. Far more than John 3, 16. Okay, far more than any number of other passages we can memorize. Here, here's what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, in the book of Matthew, these verses precede just before the same exact story when Mark tells it about these two, these Sabbath stories we're looking at this week and next week. See, Matthew has put this together in such a way that Jesus declares he's the Sabbath and then has the con these controversies with the Pharisees over what the Sabbath is. Jesus is saying, I am the Sabbath rest. He's redefining it. He's re he, he, he's, he's re-engaging. He's doing something totally new with it. Now, long story short, that's a big part of why it does not matter that, that the Christian church moved the Sabbath idea to Sunday, even though Sunday is not the Sabbath. More on that in the email I'll send out later this week. But I want you to hear this. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He says, come to me all who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That word rest is the same one for Sabbath. I will give you rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse, nine, four, 4 verse 9, we're told, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now this is a future tense. This is a, a thing we should all be looking forward to. Sabbath had been commanded. It had been practiced. It had even become a burden for the people. But then Jesus makes Sabbath rest a promise. promise came and the rest would come. Writer Scott Hubbard writes this about this. He says this, the ultimate Sabbath rest is coming. When God's people will enjoy work without toil, hearts without sin, and an earth without thorns. Just take a minute and picture that. What would it be to work without toil? Where we get to eat the bread but not sweat. Hearts without sin. I can't even fathom that. And here, picture this, especially we who hate goat heads and earth without thorns. Praise the Lord. Okay? But hear this. This is future. We're looking to this. This is, this is the end. But here's what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5. It says that in Christ we have tasted the powers of the age to come. We've already tasted of that rest that we will have. It includes Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4 verse 3 tells us, we who have believed enter that rest. Friends, I want to point this out. This is not a future. will enter. This is enter. This is now. This is present. And the rest comes not from observing one day as holy over another. The rest comes how? If you're looking at this with me, you're in Hebrews chapter 4, verse, th verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted the Lord in salvation, 
then it is not you will enter that rest. It is that you have. It is that you have entered that rest. Church, hear these words again that he declares to you, if that is you, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, then there is no rest for you. Not only is there no rest now, there's no rest promised. Hear this, church. The Sabbath was a day off to be looked forward to as the weight of, a, of weekly work crushed in. Exhaustion set itself in. Frustration at the challenge of sin and brokenness tainted work makes everything more difficult than it should be. Sabbath was once a week, but rest in Jesus is every day. The Sabbath rest had an end. Eventually the sun would set and the new day and the new week would begin and it would just cycle all over again. Just as tiring, just as busy. But church, hear this. The rest that we have in Christ goes on forever. The Sabbath rest gave by, rest by restricting, but Jesus' rest comes in by freedom. Freedom to stop defining ourselves by what we do and how we do it. Freedom away from the pursuit of money, success, and power that we might seek first the kingdom of God. Do you know you can work all day, every day, all year, every year, and have nothing to show for at the end? I mean, we've been there. Some of us, have, that's happened. I and mean, we've, we've spent decades building business only to have it collapse and be in debt at the end. But seek first the kingdom of God. Build first the kingdom of God. You know what happens? It goes on forever. It's eternal. Freedom to pursue intimacy with God over and above all other things. Some of us need to give ourselves permissions. Wives, husbands, some of you need to give your spouse the permission to sit down and just sit at the feet of Jesus. Individuals, some of us need to be given permission to ourselves to just sit at the feet of Jesus and be intimate with him, in relationship with him. To say, yeah, I know there's 10,000 things on the to-do list. You know how you're going to get them done? By pursuing Jesus instead of all those things. The Sabbath rest was a memorial. It was a memorial of creation. We're told that the Sabbath exists because God created and then took that rest. We're also told in Deuteronomy that, that it was a memorial to the exodus, the freeing of God's people from Egypt, from the slavery that they faced there. And then what Jesus does is he takes the whole thing and he says there's one more memorial, and that's a memorial of redemption. And that's the greatest of all the works. Did you know that Jesus dying on the cross and your salvation is a greater work of God than the creation of the universe? Think about it. In creation, God shared himself with us. And in redemption, God sacrificed himself for us. You know what that means? That means you, believer, you, Christian, you are more wonderful, more beautiful, more powerful, more lovely in the sight of God than every sunset, every ocean view, and every mountain landscape that we could picture. 
And Jesus is saying, all of that, all of that is in me, the rest that comes. If you're tired and weary, then Jesus has the rest you need. You hear me every single week talk about how much we all need to be saved, that we're all sinners, we, we all need his death and resurrection. And maybe everyone in this room right now is saved. Praise the Lord if that's the case. But I would venture to guess that there's at least someone here in this room today who needs to hear that Jesus has the rest you need. Not only has it, he's the only one who has it. Come unto him. Come unto him. If you're tired, you're weary, you're weak, you're burdened, today's the day. Cast that upon him. He is strong. He can carry it. He can take it. So church, I just want to finish up with a few thoughts on how we find rest in Jesus. Number one, we need to trust in Jesus. We need to trust in Jesus. If you don't trust in Jesus, if you are not saved, you have not given him your life, there is no rest. All you have is work, toil, and death. But if you are in Christ, then you have life and eternity and peace. Number two, here's something uh, very practical I would offer to you, and I would encourage every one of us to do this, whether it's today or tomorrow morning, but don't wait longer than that. Take the time. Take an hour. I don't know what it is. Wives, uh, moms, give your kids to your husband for a, an hour. Dads, give your kids to your wife for an hour. Whatever it is, whatever this looks like, get alone, get by yourself, and what I want you to do is write out a list of all the things that keep you from rest in Jesus. And it might be your schedule, it might be work, it might be the demands you place on yourself, it might be people-pleasing like myself, <laughs> it might be some sin that you have that just means you never go to Jesus because it's always there between you and him. Write those things out, and then what you do is this week, every day you bring those to him. Even just in a couple minutes every day, you say, Lord, I, I need to let these things go. I need to let these things go. That leads me to the, number, to the third one, which is this, to set aside the time for rest and give yourself permission in Christ to do so. You are not defined by your work, church. You are not defined by your to-do list or by your list of check marks that are next to things that you already did. If you are in Christ, you are a son or daughter of the king. That is who you are. So give yourself permission to rest as you have been called to by the king of this universe. Did you know that taking the time to rest is a demonstration of your faith? And if you don't seek that rest, then what you're saying is, I can do this on my own. Somebody might argue with me on this, but I think they'd be wrong, and I think I'm right in saying it. I genuinely believe that any time that we pursue rest, and I hear this, actually, I should say, I should qualify this. As believers, any time that we pursue and find rest, we are glorifying Jesus. Anytime. I mean, that means when we decide to put our list away and go for a walk, we're demonstrating our faith. Every time that we decide to sit down and read our Bibles and pray, we're demonstrating our faith. And so church, I just challenge you. 
to seek Jesus, seek the rest that only comes in him. And I want you to hear these words we'll finish up with. One writer, his name is, last name is Hubbard, he wrote this, the world and the devil would have us work even while we rest. Let me say it again. The world and the devil would have us work even while we rest. But Jesus would have us rest even while we work. And here in this Christ-saturated resting and working, we live out the Sabbath today. Just to bring this all back around to the very beginning, Old Testament law commanded someone who di- commanded that somebody who didn't observe the Sabbath would be put to death. It was that important. In Christ, we celebrate the Sabbath every single day. Let us do so as individuals. Let us do so as families. Let us do so as a church. Amen?